Good afternoon. This is RJ with the IWS podcast, and I have my man Luis here. Good afternoon, Luis. How are you doing today, sir? Pretty, pretty good. Thank you very much for having me here today, RJ. Yes, absolutely, man. Uh, it, it's always good to, of course, be able to speak to another provider um, because it's not like we have this very large network of people that look like you and me that do this type of work. So I very much appreciate you being here. Um, I know we got to talk a little bit offline uh, previously. Uh, obviously, we have some questions that I want to get into and really take the opportunity for the audience, whoever's viewing or listening this to really get the opportunity to learn a little bit about both myself and you, some of the areas that we focus on, some presenting issues that a lot of clients may come to us for, and just a lot about, about your experience and kind of what drove you to do this type of work. So just to kind of lay the foundation, but I want to jump right in and start a little bit more learning a bit about you and your family dynamic and sort of what your experience was growing up in your uh, living environment. Yeah, so my family dynamic uh, is, was very interesting. So I'm the oldest of four children. I am the only boy, three sisters. So oh, wow. yeah, <laughs> that's, that's the response, <laughs> almost the uni universal response I get from everyone is that Oh, wow. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> I only have one sister, so I could I could somewhat imagine, but not the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it, it was challenging. Um, fun, of course, and there were a lot of memories. But just for me, at least one of the many challenges was that you're the oldest, you're the only boy. So I was instilled with messages that, you know, I had to be some de facto protector of my sister's. But I also had to set an example for them to follow. So right. in all honesty, there wasn't really much room for error and even just, you know, a minor error, such as getting caught chewing gum in class or after school detention for having a spitball fight in, in class in the seventh grade. Mm. Uh, I, I got a lot of scorn for that. And um, one of those things told to me was just that, you know, not so many words. You were setting a bad example. Don't do that again. If you do that again, you're going to get in trouble. This is what's going to happen. But you're also going to be, again, setting a bad example for your sisters. So sure, sure. there was a lot of pressure on me. And I think kind of what made things a little bit worse, too, was the fact that when I was six years old, my parents separated. So uh, mom and dad weren't living together for some time. Yeah. So um, I kind of in, you know, again, this de facto type way, I kind of took the uh, role, you know, young six, seven year old me of being the male of the home. So even kind of more of a, of a pressure, not so many words yeah. to be the example. I mean, I, I wouldn't say that I was fully parentified, but just still like you need to watch your sisters, you need to do this and so forth. And at that time too, I had to learn a lot of survival skills, such as cooking and cleaning. So yeah. um, very interesting. Um, I'm also a first generation college student. So um, even going to college, uh, just again, you know, a pressure in that you had to perform well, you had to set the example for your sisters, yes. and you had to do this and do that. And so um, I can honestly say a lot of it was anxiety inducing and just it even stirred up a lot of concerns about me, you know, doing a good enough job and even questioning my role as a son, as a brother, mm -hmm. um, and even later on in life, you know, as, as, a, as a father. So um, interesting, but like I said, I wasn't all, you know, just rain clouds and thunder and things like that. There are also one, a lot of wonderful moments. Um, my sisters and I have a pretty strong bond. Uh, everyone's kind of scattered. So we see each other uh, when we can, but the relationships are really strong. But I would say one thing uh, of just, you know, my upbringing and those expectations of one of many good things came from it was the fact that we 
we got to be pretty close. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we know we're here for each other, even if we don't see each other for a while. Yeah. You just still know that we're phone call, text call, um, text message away. And, um, you know, just reach out to me if you need me and vice versa. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. I mean, I love when you can be able to lean on the especially the media family, right? Yeah, to, to be able to develop those bonds and those relationships. But there's there's some definitely some interesting points you brought up. I want to touch on in terms of your family and the way that you felt your role sort of evolved. It seems like maybe more so after your your family parents and family had separated. Because one thing I heard when you were kind of talking about maybe being parentified. I've I've had this uh, type of conversation before where it seems like it's so somewhat like pseudo husband, if you will, yeah. kind of stepping in that role, obviously not in a romantic sense, but in terms of responsibilities and role, because if you're the sole male in the house at that time, then you're sort of walking between those realms of maybe older brother, but then there's some attributes of a husband that or a father that you might want to, your mom might might have wanted you to take on to help sort of balance the house. Is that at all what you meant when you were saying? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And even um, after my parents got back together some years after their separation and dad moved back in, back into the home, even though he was the man in the house again, there was still a lot of that lingering, um, those lingering expectations that, yeah. again, set the good example, help out with this, help out with that. And like I said, you know, survival skills that I had learned, cooking and cleaning that um, I was expected to help prepare meals, um, do the laundry, uh, get my sisters to do their chores, things like that. And even kind of given an authority in not so many words that if they don't do their laundry, their homework, yada, yada, because my parents did work a lot too um, after they got back together, that you need to tell us and, you know, we're going to give them their consequences. So even that part of me, you know, by then I was already a tween and just like, okay, I, I know they're not doing their homework, they're not doing their chores, but do I really want to say something to get them in trouble and then, you know, have them <laughs> lose their privileges and it'd be right. kind of my fault in not so many words. So uh, there was, in all honesty, there was a little bit of resentment uh, towards me because I would have to, you know, quote unquote, wrap them out. Yeah. Um, so just, oh, well, you're going to tell mom and dad about this and, you know, watch what we do around him because he's a snitch, you know, just stuff like that. None of those exact words. So, yeah, you know, again, a, a little bit of tension that I think was disadvantageous um, to my tween years, early um, adolescence in, in those years and my relationship with them. But, you know, as I kind of started to do my own thing, as I got through high school, um, my focus was just, you know, school, social life, things like that. Mm-hmm. I was playing sports at the time, too, was just um, miraculously a lot of those expectations and the authority, they, they kind of just it just just, you know, died down so to speak um okay it wasn't necessarily ebb and flow it was just kind of more of like a like like, like an ebb of the tide but um yeah so I, around that time that's when i noticed my relationship with them getting a little bit better there was less of me snitching on them you know and and, and um i guess layman's terms nowadays um yeah. but because too again i have my own things to do and i think the subtle message i was sending my to my parents was that you know you guys need to step up and you need to take over i got my own life i'm living and, you know, of course, I get a little bit of pushback from them, but I just learned at the end of the day that, you know, it's not my job to raise them. Um, of course, right. I'm going to be there for, for them. I'm going to take care of them within my best abilities, within my role as a brother and as a son. But that's it. That's it. 
no more being a parent, no more being a, a second dad or whatnot. So it got a little bit better after that. And again, I think that's what allowed us to have a good relationship uh, to this awesome. very day. That's awesome. And I'm wondering, because you kind of touched on it a, a moment ago with when you said when your father and your mother, they got back together and your father came back in the home. So you started to be able to let those roles and responsibilities sort of come to the wayside. Do you think that that helped also benefit maybe your relationship with him as well? Not only him coming back into the house, but you being able to be more of a son again and less of a parental type figure? Interesting. Um, not necessarily because I, you know, just there, there was this underlying tension. Uh, there was kind of like a tug of war going mm. on back and forth where I'm the dad. Now you all need to listen to me. But of course, when he wasn't around, you know, just, okay, well, you guys, again, me telling my sisters, you need to do your homework, yada, yada, so forth. And then when he came back you know, from work or whatever it was, well, you know, when we were all together as a family and me reporting that stuff to my mom, you know, just even in conversations he'd have with her that, you know, we need to step this up. We need to take over this and so forth. He shouldn't be doing it. And part of me got it, but then part of me was like, but you know, that's kind of my job. But again, this was instilled in me right around that time that they separated. So right. it, it was kind of hard to break that. And again, there was a little bit of tension. Okay. Um, I, I can't say, you know, there was there were any full on arguments or that was actually brought up. But nevertheless, that tension is just, you know, as human beings, we can pick up on a person's negative energy. And I picked right. up on on that from him quite several times. Um, and it's that thing, too. We never talked about it. Um, I'd be curious to know, you know, what his thoughts were, but just... You know, again, just I'm the dad and me knowing that, but just still like, yeah, but if they're not doing what they need to do, again, that 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 part of me is that, okay, but right. I need to make sure that this this gets corrected or it gets addressed one way or another. Um, so, yeah, it, it was, I, I guess, some form of parentification, but kind of subtle, but then kind of not at the same time. It was a really weird dynamic. No, uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and I appreciate you for sharing it, man. I, I'm asking these questions and I, I was asking for more detail, mainly because I can imagine there's some people out there that can certainly relate to that. It, it, predominantly the part where you said if the parents separate and then somebody sort of gets elevated, usually the eldest gets elevated to this responsibility role. And me for like, uh, in my situation, I'm the youngest. So I have an older sister. That's why I laughed when you said you have three, because I, I had enough trouble with just one. <laughs> but she kind of got put into the role, I guess, that you would have said that you experienced. So she was like reporting to my father about anything that I was doing. And she was kind of elevated to the motherly role because my mom passed away when we were young. So it was just no, mainly me, my sorry. older sister and my, and my father. But to your point, though, about the way it plays on the relationship, you know, I can imagine it's tricky being the me being the younger one. Um, feeling like you're being told on often to the, you know, to the parent and being suffering consequences. So I can imagine like how that could possibly strain the relationship between the siblings. Right. But I, yeah. but I like the way that you explained how you got elevated to that role and you sort of grew accustomed to it because you, I, I imagine you had to do it for some time and it's maybe at some point it starts to become a part of you and then learning how and when maybe if appropriate to separate that, Mm -hmm. to say, hey, I want you to be like a kid again or a teen again. I want you to actually be yourself, do things that are age appropriate. You don't have to do these things. I'm sorry you had to do them in the first place, but I don't want you doing those things anymore. Let me take that over. You go back to just being a child. But I imagine in a lot of cases, we don't have those conversations. So then it's just kind of 
I'm like walking between not really sure how to interpret that or how to behave. I don't know if that was at all a conversation you guys had. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was just, you know, th this adjustment again, that with dad back in the picture, we knew that both parents were now running the home. But, but like I said, you know, just kind of hard to break that when I've been programmed to take that role for, yeah. you know, a couple of years. Um, I mean, he would come and visit and what have you and even come stay with us, but him and mom technically weren't together. Um, right. So it was kind of like he was, he was out of the picture in many regards. Um, I can honestly say though, in all honesty, I, I didn't take any pleasure, of course, in, you know, just again, writing them out, telling yeah. my mom they didn't do this and, and, and didn't do that. I didn't take any pleasure in, you know, being an authority figure, nor did I try to, you know, just um, uh, be, you know, a, 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 a parent type figure, but just one who, you know, took pleasure like, well, you need to listen to me and I can tell you what to do. Mom gave me power, things like that. I, yeah. I never did. I never did. But, but I think just for all of us at the time, a lot of it had to do with just recovering from the shock that mom and dad weren't together. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we were still young. Uh, so there was a lot that we didn't understand. But when, you know, a child is that young and sees his or her parents not living together, there's a lot going on up there. There are a lot of emotions. Of course, mm -hmm. a lot of children feel a sense of guilt, shame and blame that we had something to do with this. And you know, I can probably go on a, another couple of hours long conversation about this, but, um, right. you know, again, we were just reeling from the fact that they're not together. And so it was like, oh, wow. You know, so this is really happening. And now it's just, um, it's just the four of us. So, yeah. um, my, my youngest sister came after, uh, he, um, he, he moved back in, back in a couple oh, of okay. years later, but, um, yeah, you know, it's just like, oh, wow, this, this is so weird. So, um, you know, just not being able to articulate that even though you know something was there. And of course, this was in the 80s, uh, the mid late 80s. Um, mental health awareness was starting to gain some traction, but not mm -hmm. as much as it is now, even though we still have a lot to work, a lot of work to do now. Yes, but sir. nevertheless, still, you know, you, you don't talk about these things. And then there's the whole cultural dynamic is that we don't share our problems outside of the family. We don't even share our problems with, with other family members outside of our, our nuclear family. So Yes. There's just this, this heavy weight that we were carrying, but we just had to deal with it. And, you know, which caused this weird dynamic to um, even feel weirder in many regards. Yes, absolutely. And I love that you 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 took the cultural aspect because, you know, I'm, I'm always big on considering the cultural lens beyond like I would say like the you have the American cultural experience and then the subculture of wherever we maybe ethnically identify that we're from and how those maybe cultural values and norms would play on our ability to maybe engage in conversations like this. So I'll give mm -hmm. you an example. I'm always big on being transparent. So for me, I talk a lot about not only being a man and just within the gender role, I feel not really being promoted or encouraged to speak openly about the things that we feel and quite honestly being minimized and invalidated actually and, and more encouraged to suppress how one feels unless you demonstrate it or express it in a physical manner. But to take it further from like a subcultural context, I grew up, my father's side of the family is, is black. My mother's side of the family is Salvadoran. So I experienced a little bit of, of a bit of both. And my experience was in both communities, there's not this sense of articulation of what you're experiencing, what you're going through. A lot of it has been seen through the lens of if you are experiencing mental health concerns or emotional challenges to seek counsel through your faith, through your church. Mm -hmm. 
And I went to both types of churches as well, both Southern Baptists, but I went through through like Spanish speaking churches and black churches. And so for me, it's been an interesting experience growing up and then obviously working with other men and young men who are going through these experiences and understanding that a lot of it has been a lack of awareness, a lack of comfortability, and then a lack of language to properly articulate what it is that you're actually going through. And so mm -hmm. hopefully, you know, the purpose of having these conversations is to slowly change that narrative and change that outlook so that it can be more comfortable. Yeah. But I do think culturally we have to be aware that that can further suppress our willingness to seek out help. Right. So mm -hmm. I would like if you if you can touch on it briefly, because you were sort of going there from your experience, both maybe you as an individual or you as a practicing therapist, can you identify some of the challenges that maybe you see like Latinos maybe struggle with when it comes to seeking out mental health services? Yeah. Um this a lot has to do with mental health stigma in the broad sense, but even in the more narrow sense too, in that mental health stigma, just again, like I mentioned earlier, we, we made some headway in destigmatizing it, normalizing it, um, both seeking out support. Um, this month is um, men's uh, health month. Um, and also to men's mental health awareness month is kind of like um, lumped into that last month, May was national uh, mental health awareness. So right. There's the campaigns and things like that, but nevertheless, stigma is very prevalent within the society at large. So we still have a lot of work to do. But you know, when you look at it, even from a cultural perspective, a cultural lens, um, you know, I think of just being a Latino male and the idea of machismo, chauvinism. You know, this mm -hmm. idea of pretty much toxic masculinity, and that you know, a man is strong and a man doesn't feel emotions, he doesn't express emotions. Um, it's all rooted in warrior culture and so many other things is that, you know, we just keep fighting, we keep going, we don't have time to, you know, grieve or whatnot, we keep going and going and going, but then for generations, when that's, you know, the norm pretty much, yeah, it, it's it's programmed in us as men, Latino, and even, you know, just in my experience working with African American men too, is that that, that gets suppressed, you don't deal with emotions, you know, those things are reserved for women, so there's even that, yeah. that chauvinistic, uh, sexist component to it is that, you know, emotions are for women, not for men. You suck it up, you deal with it, and you move on. Any, you know, uh, expression of your emotions, uh, conveying your emotions in any way, shape, or form, especially those related to hurt, grief, and sorrow, um, are basically um, a minimization of your masculinity. So if you mm -hmm. cry, you're not a man. You know, so masculine right. identity, and again, this warped sense of you have to be stronger, whatnot, has really inhibited a lot of Latino and just some, you know, men again, amongst um, many other populations from seeking yes. out the support they need. And I think too, just um, what has been a little disadvantageous, um, you know, unintentionally, of course, is that when, you know, just men decide, okay, well, maybe I ought to seek a therapist and they're looking for a male therapist, especially one of color. We're very scarce, you know, on a national <laughs> yes. level, a local level. And it's like, well, okay, well, they don't exist. Maybe my problem isn't as bad as it is, you know, that's kind of like go. a, like a de facto message program. Yes. Their mind. So, okay. Out of sight, out of mind. I don't have to deal with it, but we know deep down inside that that's, that's not the way to go. That suppressed emotions. It, it's like a volcano, you know, it just builds up yes. and builds them before, you know, it, boom, everything explodes. So, um, yeah, I, I think just undoing stigma at, at, at the broad level, but even, you know, a cultural level in, normalizing emotions as being uh, a totally human experience is that, you know, when we feel things, it's okay to have those reactions. Um, 
I, I, I compare it to getting a paper cut. You know, you get a paper cut, one of those clean ones, especially too. Right. It, it's a tiny thing, but it hurts like hell for those couple of seconds. But you know, that yes. whole ouch reaction, that's what we do as people. That's how we right. respond to things like that. So if we lost a family member and we're grieving and, you know, we feel like the tears need to flow, they need to flow. But that again is a, a natural reaction just as, 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 as human beings, but transmitting mm -hmm. that message. And again, in particular to men of color, that it is okay. It's totally okay to cry when you feel your feelings and emotions. Yes. You know, allow yourself to be human. Don't do the opposite because that can just, the consequences of that can be disastrous. I could not agree with you more. I think that, uh, and I try to not just take a peek at it just from a cultural perspective, but also particularly from a gender role perspective and, and those expectations, because I agree. I've found doing my sort of, sort of anecdotal research, talking to people from all parts of the world, truly, and learning that a lot of them um, that are that identify as, as men have, have had very similar experiences, not only in their growing up with their mothers and fathers, but the behaviors that you just described that I, like you said, grief, right? That would be probably the easiest thing that one would imagine would be appropriate to express that level of sorrow. And yet mm -hmm. we would still say, no, you need to be tough. You need to be strong, be strong for your family, be strong for yourself, be strong for others. And, and, and again, sort of immediately invalidating that experience, like you're not allowed to then be sad, to be upset, to maybe even be angry, depending on the circumstances of what happened. And I certainly have had to go through that myself because I've, I've had my fair experience of loss throughout my life and trying to help other people also when they're going through it, even before I was practicing as a therapist. And I've noticed that be a challenge, particularly for, for men and because of the reasons that you described. It's just generally seen as not part of masculine energy or masculine traits or masculine expectations, however you want to phrase that. It's not things that men typically do or behave in. So then what do we do as the, what's the contrary aspect of that? Well, in my experience, that's when, especially when you get young men, we express ourselves in probably the most primitive way you can, which is physically. Maybe we punch things, break things, scream, argue, fight, so on. And those are things that we don't like, like in the, in the big picture. We don't like that, that men do that, but then we also are still creating and maintaining the conditions that keep us still behaving that way. You know what I mean? So it's sort of a catch 22. It's like, well, we want you guys to evolve, but then at the same time, we're not going to change some of these attitudes maybe, or general dispositions, if you will, that make you want to force yourself to actually do something about it. And so that to me is another reason why like we're talking. That's the reason why I wanted two men talking to say, not just because we're providers, but we're still men that it is okay. It is appropriate to express yourself, but more importantly, to feel your feelings. Sometimes you're going to be feeling great. Sometimes you're going to feel pretty low. And we all have that, that those waves that we ride at times and it's totally healthy. But what we don't want to do is minimize or suppress or put it to the side because we're really only kicking the can down the road and you better believe those things are going to come up later, you know, the longer that we go without dealing with it. So I think it was very, you know, very poignant what you said, because I think that a lot of us need to not only hear it, but also maybe at times be reminded of it. Cause we might, you know, sort of detach at times or feel that, you know, it's more about somebody else's pain or their struggle. So let me not make it about me. 
but I would argue, no, I think we always need to make that time and, and budget that time really to have those experiences and make sure that we're processing those things as close to when they're happening as possible so that we don't allow those things to build up. And like you said, sort of erupt at random times like a volcano. Yeah. The other thing too, um, I think that we need to address um, are, you know, just educating people on these unhealthy coping skills that I hate to say it, but in many ways they are deemed, I guess, a little bit more acceptable than crying. So drinking your, your, your sorrow away, your grief, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. drinking, smoking, shooting up, I don't know, just substance usage yep. is that, you know, in, in, in our society, you know, at, at, again, the broader level and even in, you know, yes. um, individual cultural level, that's, that's okay. You know, unofficially it's okay, even though we know that it's not healthy, but you know, right. just those ways are seen are, are, are labeled as well. Okay. If, you know, he's going to drink because he's sad. Um, okay. Maybe he shouldn't be doing that, but Hey, you know what? That's what he's going to do or whatnot. But forgetting that, no, that's not healthy. Um, right. think about how that could just open up another can of worms with respect to, you know, addictive behaviors and, and everything else that comes with that. So it, it's really attacking that too. And, you know, just, just conveying the message of, well, you know, it may seem a little weird and awkward being a man and crying when you're grieving, but again, that's, that's a normal human reaction. It's healthy. Um, you know, it's, it's a safe thing to do. It's mm -hmm. always great to express your emotions with trusted people, whether it's family, friends, people who can help you hold these things, or if you seek out professional help, but going right. to the bottle or, you know, just the, the joints or whatever, whatever it is. Probably not, because also folks forgetting that how that could just disrupt their general lives, period. You know, someone has just mm -hmm. become so accustomed to drinking because he's dealing with unprocessed grief and he's showing up to work drunk or just calling out certain days, you know, because he, he can't get to work because just he's intoxicated. Right. How is that going to impair his life um, and just, you know, create an avalanche of problems that he doesn't need? So yeah. I, I think, yeah, part of the whole maybe not destigmatizing necessarily, but just, just the, the awareness that we raise up is that again, it's okay to express your emotions um, mm -hmm. and being careful, being mindful that you're not turning to the bottle or anything else to help you cope with the grief and sorrow that you're dealing with. Yes. No, I, and that I would absolutely agree with. I, I talk a lot about that with clients as well. Um, really focusing on what I would consider, because I spent a fair amount of time working in substance abuse facilities. Um, I'm not I'm not the person who will necessarily, and I'm not saying you are either, but for those out there, I'm not the kind of person that would like necessarily demonize somebody for choosing to engage in a substance, right? But what I would always talk about, number one, from a clinical perspective, you know, we don't want dysfunction. So if you're getting to the point of misuse before you even get to abuse or, you know, full on addiction, that those are problematic behaviors, right? We would want to address those. So I'm always looking at what's your intent? Like, why are you using it? Is your intention to escape because you don't have the proper tools to effectively resolve or deal with the issues that you have right now? Because if that's the case, that's probably not a good reason to then engage in that substance. I don't care if we're talking about legal or illicit. The point is that I'm using that to run from my issues instead of actually deal with them. And I'm big on resolutions so that we can have better outcomes. But for some people, it might be truly, you know, like you uh, sort of elaborated, it might be the beer after work 
or maybe somebody smokes, you know, whatever. I could understand what that might mean for them. But again, to me, the bigger the bigger challenge would be why are you choosing to engage in those activities? And if you are able to function, not just I can, I, I'm, I'm functioning on this substance, but truly function, I'm very well, very well adjusted, very grounded, very stable emotionally, and I can deal with whatever my day-to-day -day stressors are. And that's something that I do occasionally. That to me is a different conversation than I don't know what to do. I don't know how to handle these issues. And this is the thing that helps me to better manage my emotions. Because I would say you have a greater risk of dependency if you're going that route, which is not healthy. Because if you remove that, you know, you're not really going to do well in your day-to-day -day life. Yeah, exactly. So, but it is a very valid point, though. I think we also need to be aware of that because sometimes we, um, we may be using it more than we think we are and precisely for the reasons that we're talking about because you're really using it to avoid an escape, not to actually deal with it. Um, but to slightly pivot, because this has been this has been very good topic so far. Uh, I want to I always want to talk when I have a fellow therapist on is to talk a little bit about what drove them to want to pursue the field, because I always think it's we all have different stories and different experiences. So I'm curious what indications, experiences or people perhaps helped encourage or motivate you to go down the path that you went down. Yeah, so I started my career. Uh, well, I. Um, Got my bachelor's degree in 2003. I was a criminal justice major. Uh, my intention was actually to enter law enforcement. Um, okay. I was initially planning to, well, hoping to work for the FBI. That didn't work out. Um, I interviewed with the um, Los Angeles Police Department, and I was on the way to um, going to the academy. But then that just, I, I lost my taste for that as time went by. Okay. And then um, about a year later, after I graduated from college, I uh, interviewed with the California Department of Corrections, and I went through the process. I was at the tail end of that process and ready to be brought on board. Um, at that time, I was also working in a boys' home in San Dimas, California, and uh, it was difficult work. It was working with teenage boys in particular in our unit. Um, we were a step below juvenile hall, so we would get gotcha. kids from you know the courts, uh, kids who you know committed petty offenses, but if they kept at it, you know, they were pretty much going to juvenile hall. So, mm -hmm. uh, of course, you know, just being yelled at and cussed at and insulted in any, every way, shape and form, it, it, yeah. it really wore me down. Uh, but I, I still showed up for the kids, nevertheless. So um, every unit had a therapist. I remember our therapist, his name was Martin. And um, Martin um, was total opposite of what of someone our kids would connect to. Most of our kids were Latino, African-American uh, youth. Martin was, as he used to say, was one of the whitest white guys. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't want to, you know, get into the specifics of that. Those were his words. No, it's okay. It's okay. But, you know, um, every week, well, he would meet with the kids individually, and then they would do group therapy sessions with him. So um, before their group therapy sessions, uh, they would come home from school. They'd be agitated, irritated. And of course, that's when they'd start fighting with each other, yelling at us, what have you. So Martin would call them back into his office for their group yeah. sessions. They'd be, you know, pissed off and agitated, but they'd go in there with him. By the time they left an hour and a half later, they were smiles and laughs, joking with each other. They were on program. They did their chores and, you know, just were able to, to finish out their day. 
yeah. relative ease. So I thought, wow, you know, Martin must be doing some magic with these kids. If before <laughs> they go and see him, they're cussing at each other, cussing at, at, at us and fighting. And all of a sudden, you know, they're, they're okay. So yeah. I wound up leaving the boys home. I actually didn't take the, um, uh, the California uh, Department of Corrections job either too, because I, I realized that that would keep me away from my family. I was hoping to start at the time. Uh, I'd be working up to maybe 80 hours a week, sometimes even more under very dangerous conditions. So mm. I, I, I just realized that wasn't for me. So I decided, okay, you know what? I think I'm going to lean more into the behavioral health, social work realm, um, you know, because that just seems to be my heart's calling. I want to help people and not keep people behind bars. So I started doing work um, at several agencies in um, Los Angeles County. I do in-home support. So I'd work with the, uh, the kids and the families. I yeah. would teach the parents, you know, how to communicate, uh, how to, you know, conflict resolve with their kids, how to put them on program and things like that. And I remember um, one of our former supervising clinicians, her name uh, is Cindy, Cindy Dow. Uh, her and I were going over a case that we were collaborating on. And I was just telling her, you know, well, these are my interventions. And, you know, this is what I had in mind based on the family dynamics and what I'm yeah. seeing, what the kid responds to and, you know, what, what works best for the mom. So she's listening to me. She's looking at my notes. And then she asked me, wow, Luis, um, this is good stuff. You're not a therapist. And I told her, no, Cindy, I'm not. But I just thought, oh, wow. Okay. Here is a therapist. Cause she was a therapist telling me that, wow, my work is on the par uh, up to par with what, you know, a therapist would do to conceptualize a case and formulate interventions and things like that. So I, I thought mm -hmm. long and hard about it. And um, just even again with other successes I was having with other clinical supervisors on cases, I, I just realized, okay, so I think of this and then think of Martin's experience with the kids. Maybe this is my calling. And, you know, again, working um, in LA County with primarily uh, clients, families of color, I thought, you know what, just we're, we're not served. There, there needs to be more of us. I mean, more support, yes. especially from folks who look like this to, to help these families because you know, we just think about these folks being disenfranchised by our healthcare system, social service mm -hmm. system. I think, you know, just seeing someone who looks like them, speaks a language, understands the dynamics of the culture and things like that, they're going to feel a lot safer. They're going to trust you, but they're going to get to subsequently that place you're helping them get to, you know, mm -hmm. with you being kind of um, the agent of change or, uh, you know, just helping them out in that regard. So right. that's when I entered grad school. Um, I went on a part-time basis because I was still working. So what would have taken me uh, two years actually took me four years. Uh, I graduated in 2010 from Pacific Oaks College with a master's in um, marriage and family therapy. And then um, I started my initial phases into the journey. And um, I jumped from a couple of uh, community agencies in Los Angeles County. And uh, my last one I worked at was from 2012 until 2017. I started doing different work. I was still doing therapeutic type work, but one of the um, programs I helped launch with that agency was a gardening therapy program. So we had the clients mm -hmm. come out and uh, we had this community garden next to our clinic. So we would teach them how to grow whatever was in season, tomatoes, cucumbers, yada, yada. But that was their therapy right there. So we're bringing people, you know, from all different walks of life, all ages. And it, it was very cathartic for them. Um, you know, we'd run little pseudotherapy type groups and they just love being outdoors. So it was probably one of the highlights of my career. But um, around that time, oh, a couple of years later, actually, I was looking to launch my own practice just as a side gig because a lot of us who work in community mental health, uh, licensed therapists in particular, 
tend to test the waters and okay, but what about seeing clients on the side? Right. And, you know, just seeing how that goes. So, yeah, you know, um, I, I tested the waters before you know it. I, I knew it. I, I just jumped right in. Um, and so in 2017, I, I left my full time job and I went into full time practice and been there ever since. Uh, it took me about a year, though, to uh, develop my niche because I was just seeing everybody. I was seeing uh, families, adults, kids as young as five years old. Being a dad, I, I think what was tough for me was just I would do play therapy with my clients. I love doing it. Yeah. Um, but when I came home, I was just so tired. My kids wanted to play with me and I didn't have the energy to give them because I was just so, you know, beat up, mm-hmm. uh, after, you know, being on the floor playing Monopoly or Candyland or whatever it was. So, um, that, and then I just kind of go back to my own struggles in life and some things I had dealt with. Um, and again, this can probably be another couple hours long conversation. Um, I just realized that, you know, men's mental health, where is the availability uh, of providers for men? And again, in particular, men of color, men who are dealing with things like anxiety, depression, unresolved grief, trauma. You know, men can definitely endure trauma as well. But again, scant resources and availability. So it just kind of hit me like lightning one day in that, you know what? This is my niche. This is my niche. I need to develop this. Uh, there are not very many of us. So hopefully with me and, you know, other folks, other male therapists or even female therapists too, mm-hmm. specialize in men's mental health. If we start bringing more awareness, then hopefully it changes the narrative for men and that you can come forward and, you know, uh, seek and obtain that support to deal with these, these issues you're dealing with. It's been an uphill battle, an uphill climb, because like what I mentioned earlier, the whole stigma behind men's mental health. And again, with men of color, men of color in particular, uh, but it's been very fulfilling um, in so many ways, too. So uh, the story continues to write itself. Um, <laughs> I'm still available. I'm still, you know, fighting alongside my clients to help them get to where they need to get to destigmatize mental health and just raise further awareness. Um, so I'm looking forward to several more years, decades. I mean, heck, I'm even thinking of maybe one way or another after I retire, I have a feeling I'm still going to be in the game. Yeah, one way or another, but that's that's fine. Even if it's writing a book or something to raise awareness of this, I'm, I think I'm still going to be involved. But it's it's great, and again, it's challenging work. But just when you find those moments of success with your clients, even if they're few and far in between, those mm-hmm. are probably some of the most wonderful things I think a person can can experience. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Can I agree with you more on that last part? And I, and I I like what you were saying about sort of starting to find out your niche and where you want to focus on. Cause I thought about a lot about that too. And um, you know, like, like you said, initially testing out the water is like going from community mental health where things are relatively stable. And it's like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to see what's going to happen out here. And uh, I'm going to sort of segue into a question, but I, I want to, it's because I want to elaborate on what you just said mm-hmm. because of how I started to figure out mine. Like you were just describing how you figured out where you want to sort of put more attention into. I I had sort of a, a stranger trajectory, if you will, because I kind of started off on in higher education first when I first graduated. I didn't immediately go into mental health because I'm sure you know the additional time and cost that there is post graduation, you know, to work towards licensure and all that, which I don't know if everybody fully is aware or can appreciate. You know, there, it's not just like you graduate and you get to take your test, get licensed, and move on. There's additional time you got to wait. So. For financial reasons, I had to take a little more time before I got into to getting back into doing this exclusively. But 
what really changed for me over the past couple of years really was summer 2020. And it was, you know, following uh, the George Floyd protests and everything that was going on that summer. And I, and I say that because that for me was a turning point, I would say not only sort of like a silver lining opportunity where although it was a very horrific and tragic situation that had to occur or that had to occur, but that did happen to occur, that I saw more of a resurgence for individuals from the communities who were willing to acknowledge that there was a lot of hurt and pain that they had largely not dealt with and being more encouraged to actually reach out because I started seeing more intakes and more referrals, if you will. But then the second part, after I started doing that, going through 2020, going into 2021 was this idea, light bulb moment of, yeah, there's not a lot of men that do this work. I always knew just going back to grad school that there wasn't a lot of us that were in this type of field because you, you know that from school, like, you know, cause you see who's in your classroom. You're like, yeah, there's definitely not, if there is a man, it's probably doesn't look like us. So very, very small percentage. So I remembered that, but that was the moment that was the aha for me that, that really kind of solidified that, oh, this might be something that you can really put a lot of effort into because more people who look like you are actually reaching out and they're saying that they're specifically looking out for you. And that's when I started to have that epiphany and realized that I need to pay a little more attention to my communities and my demographics, because as you said, and I like to say as well, representation matters. When you see people that look like you, not that any particular cultural group is a monolith because none of us are, but it is helpful because I would say there are some commonly shared experiences, usually, that we can relate to that you don't have to then go into detail to explain and articulate. So it makes it a little bit easier than to go ahead and jump into the things that you might have been initially concerned about. And I think that that sort of lowers the barrier to entry when you first start working with somebody. And that to me is the benefit why we need more people in the field. And this is definitely not to say, as you mentioned earlier, that nobody else from other cultural backgrounds cannot do this work because we're not saying that. But I am saying that for those that might be interested in doing this work, that number one, we exist and that we need more people that look like you and me to get involved in this work because we know that it would be a little more comfortable if you had more men being able to talk to men, um, it, you know, if, if you have the availability. So I agree with everything that you said there. And I hope that that is a point that anybody who may or may not have had that awareness or had that experience so far in their clinical journey that we definitely have a need out here. And so maybe start paying more attention to people from your community that might start reaching out for services. Cause I feel like the C starting to change. And I never yeah. felt that before it, I, that that's why that was a pivotal moment for me. Cause I never felt it prior to that moment. I don't know if you had any experience comparable to that, that you saw in your clinical practice. Yeah. So, um, was around the same time too, summer 2020. Um, after the George Floyd tragedy, I noticed an uptick in referrals from African-American clients. And um, one theme, you know, from these clients, and these, these were clients, male, female, various ages. But one theme um, I've heard from these folks whom I work with them was an anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, I remember one lady, an older lady, she had two um, younger adult sons. Her constant worry was, are my kids going to be safe. You know, they just go hang out with their friends. Uh, they work, you know, just, just live life as normal adults, but are they going to mm -hmm. be safe? Are they going to be profiled? 
Is this going to happen? Is that going to happen? Um, you know, just a lot of uncertainty. And then just, you know, related but not unrelated, we still were in the thick of COVID. So I guess one way or another, too, that was really um, exacerbating things. But mm-hmm. I, I think um, what really helped, though, at the time, I mean, I, I still am doing virtual sessions. So, of course, there wasn't the face-to-face interaction. But just, you know, as, as a therapist, as, you know, you've experienced, too, is whatever you're giving to your clients, even if it's just validation or that listening ear, it, it has to come from here. It yes. really does. And it's one of those things that we're not really trained in per se in grad school or, or in our early career, but it, it just comes. Yeah. It, it happens on its own. So I think, um, you know, that was really advantageous in the sense that, you know, these clients knew that I'm also a male of color, different community, but nevertheless, you know, like you, I've also experienced things like economic, uh, social disenfranchisement, mm-hmm. uh, racism, uh, you know, just being ignored, you know, not so many words. So, yeah. And, and what I would just share with them, we're just listening to them and that it all came from the heart. That mm-hmm. validation kept them coming again and again because it, it I don't think they told me this, but if I could read minds, if therapists haven't had, had the ability to read minds, I think their minds would be saying, you know what, but but this guy gets me. He gets yeah. me. He's a person of color and you know, he he gets our our, our shared, you know, struggles and you know within our communities or whatnot. So he gets me. He understands me and I feel comfortable coming back to him and talking to him about, you know, my fears and anxieties and everything else that's being compounded by what's happening in, in, in the world at large. So yes. yeah, that's, that's what it was, but it, it's just presence to just being able to be there for your clients. But again, even your presence coming from here, uh, clients are really good people in general, but if we don't care, you know, People, I, I think we have this innate ability inside of us to just weed that out right away that, you know what, he doesn't care, she doesn't care, they don't mm-hmm. care because of just, you know, our body language, our tone of voice oh, yeah. or whatnot. And then after a while, they're just like, well, forget that. You know what, I'm, I don't want to deal with this person anymore. Yeah. But thankfully, you know, with, with these clients, um, it that wasn't the case. That wasn't the case. And just it, it was a reminder, a stark reminder uh, for me that throughout my career, you know, regardless of whoever I'm working with, just be present. And again, make it come from the heart, make it Mm -hmm. come from the heart, but also even to reminding myself that if you don't feel a connection with your client, you don't feel connected to you, vice versa. It's okay to also refer out. Uh, I have this saying that goes that, you know, when you look for a therapist, it's like buying a pair of shoes, you can have the right size, but it still doesn't fit. So, you know, just remembering that because it could be very disadvantageous to not only our clients, if we're, that there's no established connection rapport, but mm-hmm. also to us as well in that, okay, you know what, we're, you know, just saving time for a client we don't feel a connection with maybe, you know, just even their issues are out of our scope of, um, you know, practice or whatnot, but just, there's just nothing there. When we could be helping someone else who we may be able to have that connection with, they could be yes. looking for someone else who may be able to have that connection with. Yes. Beautiful. I'm so big on that, man. When it comes to that, I, I, I usually say to clients, um, especially during a consultation, I'm like, listen, to me, number one, like we're evaluating each other. Um, you have to choose me and I have to choose you. And I don't mean that because it's a competition, but I mean it because precisely of what you just said. If mm-hmm. we don't feel that connection and start to be able to build that relationship, then it's going to be very hard for not so much me, but mainly you to be continuously motivated to make sure you're doing the work that's necessary to bring some results, hopefully, to 
make some change. And if you feel like um, you're not developing that connection with me, maybe you're not going to be as enthusiastic or encouraged to take some of the feedback or the perspective that I may offer. And that could be taking away an opportunity from another therapist that might be able to help to create more of that change within you or inspire mm -hmm. more change within you. And so I don't want anybody, I, I usually say this, I don't want anybody who, if they don't feel that connection with me or they don't feel encouraged by the way that I do this, that I don't want you to feel compelled to work with me because there means there could be somebody better out there that is a better fit. And at the end of the day, it's about you. It's not about me. Like yeah. I'll be fine if you find what you're looking for and you're able to do great work and more importantly, you resolve the issues that you were reaching out for. That is the point of all this. So it should never be about us. Um, but I do understand sometimes maybe when you're early on, like it's hard to figure out who you want to put more of your attention into. Again, your niche, where do you want to focus? It might take a little while, but I do pride myself and I respect you for saying it similarly to really pride yourself on being genuine and, and honest mm -hmm. with people. So that way they know that they're getting the best out of you. Cause the last thing I would ever want, and I, <laughs> I usually demo it with clients too, is to sit there and look, look very disinterested. Like you could tell the person's probably close to burnout. They're just like yeah. counting down the time, looking around, not, you know, not seriously engaged with you. Like I would never want that to be the case. So we, um, if we're doing the stuff that you're describing, I don't think that would ever have to be an issue because we'd be very self-aware and making sure that we're prioritizing the client and their well-being over, you know, anything that we personally want. Definitely. Um, I, I joke around uh, with some clients at intake, our first session. But I am serious when I say this, that look, look at your appointment with me today as your interview um, to hire me. If mm -hmm. I'm a great fit, great. Okay. If not, if, if I'm not a good fit for you, well, you know, you don't have to hire me. That's totally fine. You know, so just again, in that joking way, but yeah. with the, a serious message is that I just want to make sure at the end of the day, you're connected to that person who you feel yes. is going to you know, be as effective as they can be to want with you side by side on this journey of healing. Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, other, otherwise, then, you know, to me, then then what's the point? Because then you're not getting the best to me, it's I usually consider in terms of value, like I want you to get the most value out of being here, because mm -hmm. we, you know, we don't change our clients, our clients change themselves, we're just part of that journey and help, you know, try to help facilitate the process. But if you don't have that connection to me or you don't feel encouraged or motivated by working with me and what I've demonstrated so far, I don't want you to continue to feel like compelled to be here. Cause yeah. I feel like then you're, you're, so we're missing out possibly on an opportunity for greater connection, great, stronger relationship and a greater ability for you to actually create the change that you want. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's, I think it's also good for us to remind clients, you know, like, it's okay. You can get out, you can get out of the way. You have no obligation to me. So if you test the waters, you're like, yeah, consultation was good. First session was like, eh, it's okay to go find somebody else. I'd rather yeah. you find that, be happy. And then as you said, I'm very mindful of my time and having personal and professional boundaries. So I'd rather have somebody there at that time that is really serious and that more importantly, we've started to create that connection because then we're going to be able to do great work together. And I'm going to need that if I'm speaking for myself because that keeps me motivated and encouraged to do the work that we're doing. Like you, we yeah. want to see, be able to see those changes. Right. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I like the way you phrased it and I'm very big <laughs> on that. So that's kind of, hopefully that's kind of pulling behind the curtain for somebody who hasn't been on our shoes before. Um, yeah. That to me, it's, it's very important. It's to me, it's very important to establish that right off the bat. Yeah. How you frame things and especially in this profession, it, 
it means a lot. It really does. Yes. Yes. And, and I, I will add one more thing. Um, I don't know about you, but I also have been, I would say more recently following like last year, been getting a lot of first timers in therapy. Mm -hmm. And so I really like to take my time and be very patient and thorough because I want them to have not only a, as pleasurable an experience as we can in terms of the outcome. I'm sure like every session is not you know great because depending on what you're unpacking, but at the end of it, if we say, I'm glad I came. I felt like I got good value. I felt like I've learned and I've been able to make changes that have successfully impacted my life. That to me would be the point because I want mm -hmm. you to be encouraged in the future if you need help, not necessarily from me because you may move, you may need another therapist, what have you, to be encouraged to go back. Yeah. But if I if we sort of have a bad taste in your mouth because I wasn't maybe as professional as I needed to be or I wasn't as intentional as I needed to be, then you might be a person that might say, oh, therapy doesn't work. Oh, that's for mm -hmm. these type of people. Oh, that's for these type of issues. I don't ever want a client that works with me to say that. So I always take that very yeah. seriously to your, again, to your point about being very genuine and transparent. Yeah. Cause now, you know, I'm hearing you say that my worry would be that if a person just didn't establish that, that good connection, it, it might be kind of like, see, I, I knew this was going to happen. I knew therapy wasn't going to work. And this was all a reminder that, it wasn't going to work at the end of the day. So they just right. decide to give up on the process altogether. Right. When, when they, they need it, they yeah. do. Yeah. And they might, you know, you don't want this to happen, but because we know people impact other people, they could mm -hmm. potentially discourage somebody else who yeah, needs, who needs it and say, Oh, I tried it once. It didn't work. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, we can impact other people. So we want to make sure we're doing our best. So, um, this isn't a question, but I always bring up uh, self-care and making sure that we have good boundaries for ourselves and protecting that space for us as providers. Uh, so that way we can make sure that we can be present and we can take good care of our clients when we're working with them. Because otherwise, number one, we don't practice the things that we advise other people to do. And then more importantly, I'm very big thinker of long-term impact. And I think about if I'm not taking good care of myself, then there's a greater probability that I'm not going to be in the field that long, which means that I'm not going to be able to have as great of an impact as I could. So I'm very big believer in making sure we're taking care of ourselves as much as possible, not only just for self, but then of course, for the benefit of any client we have currently or in the future. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I, um, just to, to piggyback on that, um, you know, when I talk to people about self-care, just, just people in general, um, mm -hmm. but especially parents too, is yes. that, you know, just think of yourself as a cell phone, right? Um, you know, you are there, people depend on you to do X, Y, and Z, but if you're not taking time to charge up, what good are you going to be to everyone else around you, your family, mm -hmm. you know, your job, whoever, if you're not taking that time to charge up through self-care, rest, you know, and just general good health practices. So I think, yeah, when, when I, I phrase it that way, a lot of folks, it kind of helps them conceptualize that. Oh yeah. Okay. Maybe I do need to take care of myself. Maybe I do. And even again, we can probably have hours long conversation about this, but even with men, I think with men, the, the concept of self-care, it's, it's, it's like oh, yeah. ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics. You can see it, but not really understand what it means. So, oh yeah, I, I think that's one of those things that we also have to 
have to start normalizing more. Yes, sir. I'm very, I'm very firm on that. Actually, that's I don't like to be very directive all the time unless it depends on the type of situation. But that is, I will say, especially as a parent, I'm very directive when it comes to that because I, I like to talk about the the concept of the different hats that we wear in, the, in terms of the roles that we play. So yeah. I'll say, like for example, like I would use you, right? I would say you're a man you're a father and you're you were married correct hmm. okay, yeah. and, a and a husband so you got at least three roles so what are you doing to make sure you're addressing each of those people because if we don't then there's a deficiency there's an imbalance that's going to creep up later on down the road right so mm -hmm. for example i'll get like a lot of uh moms because usually moms are bringing sons to me so i'll get like moms and they'll talk about like how they find a lot of value working and being able to provide and they talk a lot about their children, but I don't hear them talk a lot about themselves. They're like, oh no, because I get most of my fulfillment from being a mother. I was like, ma'am, yeah. I don't agree. You're still, a, you were a woman before your son, was, son or daughter was here. You're still a woman now. If you don't address those aspects of what brings you joy and fulfillment outside of being a mother, number one, what are you gonna do when they're grown and they don't live with you anymore? Number two, how are you going to maintain yourself between now and then because that means there's huge parts of your life that you're neglecting. Yeah. And that's not healthy. And so when you talk about self-care to me, like that's why that's so critical. And when I talk about like um, relationships, like romantic and then even children, right? So I'll usually like rank them in an order because this is always rang true for me. I'm like, you're number one, you're always at the top of your tower, pyramid, whatever you want to call it. You're at the top. And then if you're married, for example, you're in a romantic relationship, that that relationship would then come next. Because if you're not well, you won't be you won't do well in your relationship. And mm -hmm. then your children and that relationship comes third. Not because your children are less important. It's just it's a hierarchy for a reason. If I'm mm -hmm. not good here, my relationship's not good. That's the foundation of the family. So then the children aren't going to be well because they're witnessing all of these dysfunction around them. And that, you know, that's not the examples that we want to demonstrate. So I'm always a big believer in like understanding our roles, understanding boundaries. If we don't have them, how do you create them? The need, the need to maintain them effectively. And a lot of it comes back to, as you said, with men, we're used to, I feel, the traditional roles of work and provide. And nobody really cares what you think. Nobody really cares mm -hmm. how you feel. Just make sure you have money and um, sort of the if you're on the child side, be seen and not heard. Yeah. And I don't I, I, I very strongly disagree. So I'm very much a big proponent of no, we want to encourage men to speak up. We don't want you to just provide money and have no emotional connection to the people in your family. Um, so we have to work really hard to create that conversation and that dynamic so that everybody is comfortable doing that. Um, but it will take time because mm -hmm. men fundamentally, you know, I think we're very much behind, not because we're not emotional creatures, but we just come up in societies that don't seem to value it as much or promote it as much. But I hope yeah. that with people like you and I and these types of conversations that it will become more normalized and that over time we won't be having to point those things out so much anymore. But mm -hmm. you know, we, we are where we are today. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm optimistic. I, I Same. Am. Same. Um, will we see it in our, our lifetime? Maybe, maybe not. But just again, this conversation today and even conversations outside of our work with family, friends, yeah. you know, people close to us where, you know, we just address these concerns and, you know, 
point out facts. This is what we see. This is what's going on. These are where the deficiencies are. Maybe we have to do something about this. You know, I, I, I'm optimistic that, you know, on an individual basis, one person, okay, yeah, you know what? I, I've been dealing with the stress for a while, work stress. Maybe I do need to talk to someone, especially when I'm noticing that I'm not sleeping, I'm not eating, I'm disconnected from my family. Yeah. A, another man, you know, who may have been a, a um, or maybe a, a veteran, you know, um, who was exposed to combat trauma and just um, not when he goes to the VA, not talking to a mental health professional, just making it about medical appointments, but realizing that, you know, these nightmares I'm having, all of these things, okay, maybe I do need to speak to someone because just this is what, again, kind of going back to something I mentioned earlier, this is what people do. And this is, it's natural that, you know, I mean, when you have something really profoundly negative happen that you're going to be impacted these ways, but it's, it's okay to, again, work through these things and just get to that place where at the end of the day, it's, it's finding and maintaining your balance. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, I, I know that's sort of like a buzzword, I think for many of us. And I, I always just say when it comes to balance, that it's not something I think that we ever achieve. It's just one of those things that we're constantly striving for in every yeah. way possible. And it's, you know, it, the more effort and intentionality I put there, the more likely I'm going to maybe feel satisfied with the, the direction my life is heading because I, I truly allocate time and resources for the things that I deem important and worthy of that attention. So mm -hmm. hopefully, you know, like in the, your example, if somebody was going through that type of experience, that they would reach out for those additional services and not look at it purely through like a medical model lens, because you're, you know, you're going to, there's part of it you're going to miss, you know, I mean, probably yeah. not paying attention to other aspects of how it might be impacting you. And with that, I want to ask you if there is anything that, you know, specifically that comes up for you with the demographics that you serve, if there's any particular issues that you see very commonly that people reach out with their um, initial presentation. Is there anything that comes up for you that you've noticed over the years? I think anxiety, um, this, this just transcends not only working with male you know, clients, you know, with people in general, with the people that I've served, mm -hmm. anxiety, we live in a world of uncertainty. First it was COVID. And then, you know, you had the George Floyd and all of these, these really awful things that happened. Mm -hmm. uh, later that year, um, you know, now mass shootings, a war, a half, half a world away, you know, we're living in a, in a world that it just seems increasingly dangerous, even though it always was. But I think right. with media, social media, you know, the, the, the pains of the world are coming, hitting a lot closer to home. All you have to do is mm -hmm. open up your phone, social media. And, you know, if there was a tragic shooting or something like that, more than likely you're going to find out about it on social media before you turn on your TV. Right. So um, people are scared. You know, they don't know where the world is headed um, and how that's going to affect and impact them. So of course, as providers, we're acknowledging that we're validating that. Yes, we're living in scary times. And also in my work too, I'm, I'm really trying to transmit the message that, okay, these are things that we can't control, but think of your, 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 your bubble the place you're living in, not a bubble of ignorance or anything like that, but mm -hmm. just, you know, your own domain where you are safe, you know, right. despite the fact that something is happening a world away. Okay. But, you know, think of how you, there's so many degrees of separation between you and that, but you're safe in your home. You know, you have your, your family, you have your friends, <clears throat> you have all of these things that, you know, not only matter, but 
you know, they, they, they bring it all back to, but my life is still going on despite these tragedies. It's like even right. to, you know, when, when we go through grief and loss of a family member, friend, someone close to us, yes, you know, of course, we're going to be dealing with the um, emotional fallout of that. And we are also, you know, going to move forward with our lives. We could still honor the grief. We could still, you know, feel the grief and the emotions that come with it. And also, too, we can still go to work, go to school as best as we can, of course. You yes. know, not trying to return to, you know, a, a sense of normalcy right away. But, you know, we can, as best as we can, get out there to work, go to school, do all those things we have to do while still honoring the fact that I'm grieving, I'm hurting because I lost someone really close to me. So um, I, I think it's just, I, I hate using the word normalizing or normal or anything like that. But just really getting to a place is that, you know, okay, so regular routine life can continue. You can also have mm -hmm. your fears and worries about these things. And also, too, you don't have to deprive yourself of finding your fulfillment in life, whether that's through seeing family, friends, engaging in hobbies, self-care. There's still a life to be lived out yes. there. And it's just making sure you're, you're getting as many slices of that fulfillment pie or pizza that you can get as just – Again, things happening half a world away or whatnot, okay, they affect us emotionally, but within our close proximity, unless, you know, the tragedy happens right in front of us, we press forward with life and remembering, too, that life is not just dealing with, you know, strong emotions, tragedies, and things like that. Life is also fulfillment, happiness, joy, seeking that in those ways we can, those healthy ways, of course, yes, but, sir. you know, the idea of whole life balance. Yes, I, absolutely. And I, it's interesting because you're bringing up anxiety and, and I would agree a lot of my clients present that way as well. And when, especially when they tell me some of the challenges that they have, one of the first things I mentioned, because you were just talking about a lot of the things out of our control that are happening in our society and also abroad is limiting the exposure of how much of that content that you're consuming because that's something that we can control. Like you just said, we have our bubble of information of space and we're not promoting ignorance, but we are saying you must protect your peace. And there's only so much of that information that you can continuously consume before you're going to get overwhelmed by it. And then you might feel more extreme emotions. Maybe you become very sorrowful. Maybe you become cynical. Maybe you just become apathetic, which I would never want anybody to get to, but maybe those are some of the things that come up for you just because you just feel like everything is so negative. Everything is falling apart. What's the point anymore? And I, you know, I certainly don't want to encourage that. And I don't believe that either, but I believe, and I tell a lot of my clients who are experiencing those types of symptoms or challenges to protect that space. So if there are certain causes you might care about, you can get, certainly make time to give those attention. If you want to be up to date and you want to be informed about those particular topics. But outside of that, you have to be conscious and aware enough. I already struggle and have difficulty with anxiety. The last thing I need to be doing is giving myself more things to be anxious about, more stressors to be aware of, because that's not going to help me create peace. That's not going to help me create balance. So usually that's like a point of, of not contention, but confrontation at times to say, hey, if you're like a very selfless person, you genuinely care about people, those are admirable traits and attributes. But I just need you to care enough about yourself to protect that for yourself, too. So, again, mm -hmm. you can have a longer term impact in the future because you're not taxing yourself out emotionally and draining all of your emotional capacity now. So you have nothing left. I don't want that for them. But sometimes it can be a, it can be a challenge initially 
to sort of reconcile those two and be okay yeah. understanding, yeah, I can't be spidered into every single issue because I don't have the capacity to be able to deal with and manage myself mm -hmm. in that regard. Um, yeah. So very, very good point. And I want to I want to end by asking you, just bringing it back to you, of any future goals or objectives that you have in your future, or maybe areas of change that you want to be able to create further impact in. Yeah. So um, right now I'm working on on a book. I'm writing a book um, related to a men's mental health issue. I'm hoping if all works out, if I stay on this trajectory, that I'll be publishing early next year. Um, but I would say, aside from just, you know, maintaining my practice, just still really raising awareness of men's mental health issues. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I know, again, in social media land and even some folks I met outside of social media, there are a couple of folks here and there who are um, promoting that. And I think we kind of need to do a little bit more. There, there's a plethora of wonderful resources on women's maternal mental health, much deserved and much needed. Mm -hmm. And also too, okay, what about men's mental health, paternal mental health, paternal mental health? I mean, that's that's kind that's of a, a big one. beast in itself. Yeah, exactly. Yes, that is. Exactly. So, you know, when you just think of the, the umbrella of men's mental health issues that, you know, again, you have paternal mental health, you have um, even issues of with, you know, men in the LGBTQ community that they yes. deal with and being gay men and, you know, just dealing, you know, with, with the pressures of society and things like that, but yes. also too, how that's impacting them. That's, that's a whole other area of, um, you know, work that needs to be done, awareness um, be brought to uh, just even parenting, parenting in yes. general outside of paternal mental health, but just, you know, fathers, fatherhood, mental health and things like that. It, it, it's an umbrella that, you know, we're, we're not really even opening up. I mean, we've taken the little latch off of it. But it's yeah. Like, uh, Still like okay. there. We're trying to. Let's open it up. Let's open it up and see what's underneath and, you know, just see what we need to address as um, as providers. Just to, yes. again, at the end of the day, normalize for, for all men, you know, regardless of background, ethnicity, you know, just sexual orientation, whatever, is that if you're a man and you're dealing with things like depression, anxiety, trauma, it is okay to come forward and work through these things. There are really good people, caring people out there. It's a matter mm -hmm. of finding the one that's the best fit for you, but there is the help. There is the help. Don't be afraid to connect with what you, you need. Yes, no, absolutely. And, and that, that to me is the perfect way to, to end this with that type of messaging. Uh, I think it's it's paramount that we continue to engage in this work and continue to try to create more exposure. And I would say more lanes for other people like myself or like you who are interested in speaking to this demographic, to this gender, if you will, because as we said, it's not limited just based on ethnic background. I think it's it's really about our role in general and the different societal pressures that we experience, but then that can, it can get further compounded based on the cultural background that you come from. Mm -hmm. But yes, we want to create the space where it is okay and it is appropriate and safe to speak openly and freely about those things. And I hope that us engaging in these types of conversations will slowly start to create maybe more of a catalyst to this reaction where we can start to see more of that change and maybe it won't become as less common or more infrequent to have men reach out for services uh, with yeah. whoever and whoever in their area. That to me truly is the purpose of well, what we're doing here. 
And again, this is not to minimize other people's experience from either other cultural backgrounds or from women as a whole, because I want everybody who needs help to go get help. But I'm speaking specifically to men and specifically to men of color because we are typically the least likely and the most resistant to starting that process. So I want yeah. you to make it very clear. We want to encourage those people to go start getting that help. And if listening to conversations like this, listening to Luis, listening to me, talk about this. If it encouraged you, I truly hope that you will start talking to somebody. And so that was, you know, again, the major point of this conversation. So I really appreciate you for taking the time to be here, to share about yourself and really give more, I would say, uh, credence to this movement. I hope that will continue to gain traction and steam because I know how much we need it. And I hope yeah. that if there's an opportunity in the future to collaborate, or maybe when you get your book published, you know, we'd be happy to support. I think it's going to be, it's critical. We need as many resources as possible. You're talking about fatherhood. We want to do everything we can to create this change. So again, thank you for being here and making the time. And I look forward to maybe collaborating in the future. Thank you very much for having me.